Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. I am back from something of a whirlwind trip to the central Andes of Colombia as part of a junket organized by Swarovski Optic and Pro-Columbia. I'll have more on that later. I do plan to produce some podcast content about it, but that will take a little time. And I do have some thoughts, obviously some experiences that I want to share here in the short term while I'm working on the longer term stuff. First, thanks to both Swarovski and the Columbia folks for everything. I do not take it for granted that my association with the ABA and this podcast makes these sort of trips possible. I am grateful to them for that. Swarovski has some new binoculars, the NL Pures that we got to use. That was ostensibly one of the reasons for the trip. And I mean, they're what you would expect from Swarovski, just a really nice piece of glass that has been really thoughtfully designed. Once you get up into that upper echelon of optics manufacturers, everybody is making really incredible stuff. And so you have to kind of do different things to make yourself stand out. And Swarovski's done that. I, I was particularly impressed by the weight, which is not a lot, especially the 32s that I was using. Um, they also have this sort of cool oval-shaped barrel design, which is meant to replicate the shape that your hands sort of normally fall into when you hold binoculars. You know, not perfect circles like a lot of binocular barrels, but sort of oblong, maybe a little egg-shaped I am not sure of the engineering required to fit a bunch of ostensibly circular pieces of glass into an oval-shaped barrel, but knowing Swarovski, I'm sure it is impressive. Certainly the result is really great. Both of those things made the long days in the field a little less tiring. It, it was a neat toy to play with in what is a truly spectacular playground, because I, I cannot say enough about Columbia. Uh, taken together, the diversity of the country is unreal. But amazingly, sort of individual parts of it don't feel particularly overwhelming. I mean, it's got nearly 2,000 bird species, yes. But that's because there are, you know, three separate ranges of the Andes Mountains. There are the lowlands between those ranges. There's the Amazon and the Llanos and the Caribbean and little isolated mountain ranges up in the north like Santa Marta. Um, there, there's a lot in a country that is increasingly open to nature tourism, there are a lot of kind of new eco lodges, a lot of entrepreneurs looking at nature as an opportunity to you know make some money from tourists, but also to protect the land that they own. Obviously, few countries are as well situated, as well suited for that as Colombia is. So as I said, I was in the central Andes. If you're looking at a map, sort of in west of Bogota in the Manizales area. So so we're looking at you know, big hummingbirds, including sword build, which, let me say, as a spectacle, totally appropriately rated uh, as, as very high, top-tier hummingbird. A lot of cool tanagers, katangas, mountain toucans, some really cool ant pittas. Uh, it's hard to point to a single highlight, 
but the morning we spent at Hacienda El Basque with the habituated Rufus and Crescent-faced Aunt Pittas was, was really something. Uh, anyway, more to come on that as I put things together for a future episode. I got to, you know, rearrange my head a little bit, but also get all the sound files and interviews and stuff like that into the podcasting software. But for now, I'm back. Let's focus on this week's episode, which is a request from a listener that I'm happy to oblige. We're going to talk summer birding tips. I'm here to welcome summer birding aficionados, Jenny Duberstein of Tucson, Arizona, and Greg Neese of Chicago, Illinois. They are also my ABA colleagues. We'll talk about what to look for during the hottest months of the year, what is so great about birding in the summer, all that after this week's Red Birds. This is your Red Bird Focus for the middle of August 2021. Thanks to Greg Neese for filling in for me while I was away last week. We have some exciting first records to report again, starting with what else? Rosie at Spoonbill. You might remember a couple weeks ago I predicted that a Massachusetts first was right around the corner. Well, the easiest prediction I've ever made came to pass with the bird in Berkshire County last week. Now Rhode Island, Vermont, and the Dakotas are on deck. That is the fourth First record for Massachusetts in 2021, tying them with New York for the most potential new species so far this year. Staying in New England, Maine's Mount Desert Island, home to Acadia National Park, has been something of a booby magnet of late with both a brown booby and the state's first record of masked booby seen in the waters around the island with photos obtained of both. And to Kansas, where photos of a nice royal turn were taken on Marion Reservoir in Marion County in the middle of the state, representing a first for them. Coastal species well inland, as with this bird, are usually associated with tropical storms, but that wasn't the case here, making it all the more interesting. That's all I have for you this week. For the entire roundup, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert every Friday at aba.org RBA. You can also get rare bird information as soon as it happens, or close enough, at our ABA Rarity Sharing Facebook group. That is ABA Rare Bird Alert, or you can follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Hot, humid, buggy. How do you describe summer birding? For my part, it has always been the least exciting and the most taxing season for getting in the field, but I recognize that my experience is not the same as everyone else's. I am joined by two of my ABA colleagues, Jenny Duberstein and Greg Neese. We're going to get into summer birding, the hows, the whys, the what to look fors. Jenny, Greg, great to see you again. How are you? I'm great. It's wonderful to see you both. Very, very good. Thank you. Yeah, we're we're from different parts of the of the country of the ABA area. What is summer birding like where you are? Well, so I live um, in the southwestern U.S. on the Hono Atom Pasquayaki lands, also called Tucson, Arizona, um, home of the Southeastern Arizona Birding Festival, which is happening right now. Yeah, um, that's so this right. Is summer birding in Arizona is actually pretty amazing, especially later in the summer. Um, but if I think about, you know, what's it like, it depends on whether the monsoon has started mm-hmm. or not. Um, earlier in the summer, May, June, sometimes even early July, it can be just hot and dry. Um, and then it rains and we have what we call second spring and everything is blooming and lush and there's water and everybody says, oh, wait, maybe we can have one more brood of birds. And so we have lots of babies and nests and it's hot and it's really humid and muggy right now and buggy. Um, but I don't know. I love summer birding, especially later in the summer where I am. Yeah. That's actually one of the reasons why I asked you 
<laughs> to be part of this uh, this mini panel, Jenny, because I know that your experience is completely different than than a lot of ours. And you know, summer birding in Arizona is that is that's when everyone goes to Arizona. Is that monsoon season in August and late July? Definitely. Well, I think I think Jenny that you your description is pretty similar to what we're experiencing. Chicago and the and the Mississippi Valley and the Western Great Lakes. Um, although that's changing today, uh, there's a cold front coming through. But oh, for well, the last for the last month, I mean, July has just been brutal. It's been one of the hottest I can remember. The humidities. I mean, we're talking 77 degree yeah. dew points. It's like you go outside and it's like you're swimming in the air. Um, but summer birding, it's uh, you know here. And, and of course, you know, being in the mountains in the desert where you are, it's like there's there's the stratification and it's not really time delimited as much as it is altitude delimited. And then there's seasonal changes on top of that. And and here it's all timing and season. I mean, it's just you can set your watch by it. You know, for summer birding here, I think, you know, summer begins with the BBS routes. You know, that's the first three weeks of summer is BBS. Mm-hmm. And then you've got this like three week doldrum <laughs> where you're looking for odes and butterflies and yeah. and tiger beetles and, and whatever. And then right around now, the fun begins because yeah. all the post breeding wandering and just stuff like I just today I got a I got a new yard bird, um, a house wren. I've never in 20 years. I've huh. never seen a house wren in my yard. And there was one back there today which was kind of weird. I mean, I would have expected it in May, but no, here it is the first week of August. (laughs) Yeah, it goes to show that the birds are definitely moving this time of year, even in places like in the east where it doesn't feel like there's a ton going on, Um, in in terms of passerines at least. You know, obviously the kind of late summer post-breeding dispersal wandering of wading birds and and obviously the the first bit of... uh, First bit of shorebird migration is always something that everyone likes to look forward to uh, out here. But yeah, it's it's similar where I am in in North Carolina. It is hot. It is muggy. It is buggy in a lot of places, especially in the shade with mosquitoes. Um, it's it's tough to get out. It's tough to get motivated to get out. Although um, there's there's certainly a lot of reasons to do so. So I would ask to to you both, like what what do you like to look for in summer? I like, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that what I look for in summer is any different than what I look for any time of year. I'm looking for whatever I can see, but it's fun (laughs) to see, you know, baby birds, to hear baby Mm. birds, to just see and hear things that you don't hear at other times of year. One of the cool things this time of year, particularly in southeastern Arizona, is that we have this second spring effect and there's Mm -hmm. birds breeding, but we also have migrants starting to come through. And so it's like a little bit of everything. Um, and it just, it feels kind of like, I don't know, like you're going through the Cracker Jack box looking for a surprise. You're not sure, you know, this is going to be a surprise somewhere, but you just never know what's going to show up. And so this, especially as you get towards the end of summer, that's kind of what it feels like to me. Yeah, I know uh, Southeast Arizona is well known for having that like rarity season in, in July and August as those things start. You know, I don't know exactly what drives it. Maybe, maybe you both, either of you, can speak to that. It's a uh, you know, weather changes in the northern Mexico kind of push these birds into the lowlands or into uh, the mountain, the Sky Islands, and the Chiricahuas and the Huachucas. There's a lot of cool stuff, a lot of cool potential um, for birds in that part of the in that part of the world this time of year. Yeah, we don't have anything like that in the Great Lakes, <laughs> but <laughs> but what we do have, what we do have. 
Um, I, I mean, the birding, the birding is interesting because I think juvenile birds, I mean, it's strictly speaking juvenile plumage, like that mm-hmm. first formative. Yeah, the real juvenile. When people talk real about juvenile, juvenile plumage, they mean a lot yeah. of things, but this is like the real deal. We're talking about, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the very first. It's it's fascinating and it's it's a neat challenge to to try to identify things as, you know, as common that we see as commonly mm-hmm. as song sparrow in juvenile plumage can really throw you off. And then the adults, things like shorebirds and 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 birds that are molting in summer, they just look ratty and terrible. And you know, you're like really making a you case these, for summer you get birding these, there, Greg. You get the first wave, <laughs> you get the first wave of adult warblers coming through in August. Yeah, they look and rough. they just look horrible. <laughs> like they've been beat up and thrown into a fan and survived. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's yeah. just and then like right after that, the juveniles come through just at the end of summer and they're all crisp, but they don't mm-hmm. look anything like the adults. And and there I'm talking about shorebirds mostly. Yeah. I mean, you know, the difference between a beat up adult least sandpiper and a crisp, fresh juvenile. Yeah. It's like they're two completely different species. It's it's so it's it's fun. That is one of the, you know, the late summer challenges of birding is kind of being able to recognize that and focusing on things like, you know, proportions and uh, behavior and things that aren't necessarily plumage related because yeah, as you say, those birds can look really different. And and sometimes yeah. those juvenile birds look really nice. I'm thinking like Baird oh, Sandpiper yeah. in particular. Yeah. That is just a really clean, nice looking juvenile shorebird with the nice scallops and stuff like that. I, uh, I, I said least sandpiper, a bright, rusty, least yeah. sandpiper with fresh plumage. I mean, people every year it's like oh, little stint. No, no, no. Calm down. <laughs> Calm down. Calm down. Yeah, but but then on the flip side of that, you know, uh, all of us, I think, have a lot of experience. It's a common bird for for all three of us with one of the the rattiest end of summer birds that just confuses the hell out of everyone, and that's vesper sparrow. Mm. And because mm. vesper sparrows, they only molt once a year, and that's in September. And by the time they get to August, I mean they are just beat beat to hell and you, you know we get these pictures of we get these pictures of vesper sparrow it's like okay well if it doesn't look like anything at all it's a vesper sparrow <laughs> yeah that's interesting so when you are going out and birding is there a certain place you like to focus because when i think of summer birding around here uh it's mudflats mudflats all day long it's to hit those shorebirds and you know especially late in the summer sometimes we don't have a lot of rain at least until the hurricanes start moving through in the southeast and so like we the the local reservoirs start drying up and you start seeing the the mud kind of extend expand 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 and uh yeah that's when you that's where you go see the birds but it also means that it's typically going to be a place that has a lot of bugs typically going to be a place where you're in the sunlight a lot you're going to be in exposed sunlight and so you have to sort of prepare so where do you go and how do you sort of prepare for being out in the field in such a um, such frequently difficult situations? I feel like, I mean, we go everywhere, right? It rains yeah. and all of a sudden there's water. Yeah, there's, so you go to the places yeah. where there's Hard water. Hard to know where to go, yeah. And we definitely have bugs, um, but I think it's a different situation than maybe you're dealing with in the Southeast. It's, I mean, we also have humidity. <laughs> But it's a, it's a dry heat. But it's That's a dry say, heat. Yeah. Listen, it's not a dry heat this time of year. I went for a run yesterday morning, and I think the dew point was 73. It was like the humidity was in the 90s. Yeah, it was 90%. It was, it's muggy right now, definitely. But, I mean, like in terms of the heat, it's hot 
before the monsoon. It's hot after the monsoon. <laughs> you get up early. You go out early. Yeah. You try to finish yeah. early. Um, I think the canyons, especially when they get some water running in mm. them, um, can be especially good. Um, I definitely like getting up into the mountains in the summer, partly to escape the heat. Yeah. Heat, absolutely um, but to see what's what's showing up with water um i follow the water more than anything summer burning for us i think the the word that could best describe it would be ephemeral because it's it's all dependent on the rain i mean if we're going to get anything that approaches monsoon weather it's going to happen in august and the water levels on the major rivers like the mississippi and the illinois really are key. I mean, sometimes you have miles of mudflats on the rivers mm -hmm. and sometimes the water is just, it's, it's very high and you have no shorebird habitat at all. Yeah. Uh, but when we do have shorebird habitat, it tends to be in places that require a death march to get to it. <laughs> uh, you, you've got, yeah, it, it's like a minimum two mile hike to get, you know, on an exposed dike with with chiggers and mosquitoes the size of helicopters to get out there and and get the shorebirds and then you're dealing with heat shimmer and all of that and then in Chicago thunderstorms are something that that uh, the the birders who 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 bird the lakefront regularly and want to find things like wimbrels or maybe like I don't know a vagrant turn like we just had a royal turn downstate oh, cool. um, Thunderstorms are what knock those birds out of the air because they migrate yeah. high in the air during the day. But when a thunderstorm comes barreling through, you you know, you go to the beach and just wait to see what puts down. Yeah. And they'll sit there during the rain and then as soon as it stops, boop, they take off. That's interesting that you mentioned the the mudflat death march. I have a friend who has a <laughs> drone and he actually brings it with him and he flies it up to the back end of the reservoirs if he can see that to see if there's any good mudflats and then flies it back to determine whether or not he's gonna He's going to make the walk. <laughs> that's kind of brilliant. Yeah, I that's, thought so too. <laughs> that's, 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 I'm, okay, that's going in my back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is, it is interesting. There is sort of like a perfect, a perfect mudflat height because if it gets too, too low for too long, then the grass and the reeds start growing on the mudflat and then you don't have any birds on there unless you want to walk through the reeds and maybe kick up a Sora or something, um, which happens sometimes on, on really dry years. Well, when the grass starts growing and it's just right, that's, I mean, that's probably, it's not a coincidence, I'm sure, when the buff-breasted sandpipers start coming mm -hmm. through. And uh, we're, we're very lucky to have, have buffies here regularly. They're just wonderful that's little birds. There was something that you said, Greg, that um, I don't know if this will be a good segue for something else that I love Please. about, about summer birding, <laughs> but you were talking about seeing juveniles and being confused by, by their plumage. The main reason that I love summer birding is because well, I'm, I'm not I'm not confused. You're Others not, are. that one might be <laughs> the possibility exists that that's right. A less experienced bird. Sorry. I gotta I gotta I, I gotta I gotta I gotta keep the myth going for all those what's the what's this bird group people. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> keep the myth yeah. alive. <laughs> Anyways, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, what was I saying? Um, the uh, juvenile birds. Sing juvenile love, birds. The reason that I love um, summer birding so much is because it's bird camp season. Yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah, as yeah. Both of you know, I have, this was my 24th year uh, leading summer camps wow. for young birders. Yeah. Yeah, in Colorado and Arizona. And I've done it in a few other spots too, but mostly Colorado and Arizona. And one of the spots we go with Camp Colorado, which is one of the, the ABA's youth camps, is the Pawnee National Grassland. 
Mm-hmm. And the day before we go there, you know, we're kind of talking about it's a big day. We leave at 430 in the morning and we drive for two and a half hours to get there. And, you know, we're talking about what to expect. And it can be really hot. Uh, and these are some species that we hopefully will be seeing. And then we have to warn them. I say, we're going to go there. And somebody in this van, maybe multiple of you in this van will say, Jenny, there's a Sprague's Pippet on the road. I see a Sprague's Pippet. <laughs> And I will turn to you and I will say, no, that is a baby horned lark. Yeah, <laughs> and you will classic. say, no, you're wrong. I'm sure it's a Sprague's Pippet. And so it's cool to see the young birds. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's I don't want to say it's not you're not going to see a Sprague's Pippet, but probably it's a baby horned lark. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Horn, uh, juvenile horned larks. Horned larks are one of the earliest breeding birds in North America, passerines in North America. I mean, in, in our neck of the woods in the upper Midwest, uh, they start breeding in March, like like even early March if there's no snow on the ground. I was going to say there's usually snow on the ground up then. And they keep going and they keep breeding. So you can have those juvenile birds anytime from like the end of March until now. And it doesn't matter where they are, what circumstance, it always throws whoever sees that. I mean, me, I look, look really like, different. what the heck is that thing? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, we have a spot in my county actually that has uh, has breeding horn larks that are on my BBS route. You mentioned BBS routes; it's like the spot I always get my horn larks on my BB on one of BB one of my BBS routes. And uh, yeah, they can throw you for sure. I mean, we administer what's this bird the Facebook group, yeah. and uh, there's usually a couple of them every oh, year. Yeah. I mean, horn larks are one of those birds that I think I think they're really interesting because they're super super common across the whole of the continent. But they're a really easy bird to miss because yep. they can be kind of mousy. And you have to Yo, listen. You have to hear them. Yeah. If yeah. you, I mean, their, their, their song and their calls are so high pitched and so mm-hmm. up there and tinkly, even when they're sitting on the ground, mm-hmm. it's just that the, their voice just kind of gets lost in the air. Oh, in and the wind. You, it, yeah, totally. It just takes <laughs> such an effort to hear them. Yeah. But once you cue you into it, you if get If you go them. to the Pawnee and, in, Mid to late July, early August, you'll have to beat them off with a stick. But don't, because they're protected. <laughs> they're, they're a really nice bird, actually. They look great. Yeah. I think it's one of those birds that I've always thought of as being in like the uh like a milestone bird for a birder. Like once you start recognizing horned larks in places and Pippet is another one of those for the same yeah. reason. American Pippet. Yeah. Like once you start recognizing that flight call, like you're gonna start finding them almost everywhere in sort of appropriate oh, yeah. habitat. Um but in but you know, you won't notice it until you get, I don't know, your your skills get or you start noticing things at a certain way. Like everyone can get there, but it's like a it's, it's like a it's like a little milestone for you if you start picking up horned larks on your bird checklist. <laughs> so you're talking we were talking a moment ago or a little bit ago about, you know, like summer wanderers and vagrants. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the one of the birds that's really cool and I guess it, it, it's not so common where either of you guys are, but is. Uh, oh, my God. I almost gave my age away. Um, <laughs> is Sedren? I almost said short-billed marsh wren. I oh swear my, I was yeah. that close. Yeah, no, Sedren. Sedrens are really cool because you know they come through in May with all the other birds. Mm-hmm. They will be singing in proper habitat right where they should be, right up until it's time to breed, and they go north up into Minnesota and southern Canada, um, and they breed. But then they come back here in August and they breed again. 
and they have a second, they have a completely second breeding territory and time in, in August here in Illinois and Wisconsin, Iowa, and so on, Indiana. And then I have read recently, and I'll have to double check this, that they go down to the South and do it a third time. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's Later really in interesting. Fall. I know in uh, Jenny's part of the world, that's a pretty common thing in the monsoon. Like there's a bunch of birds that are sort of known for that. Yellow-billed cuckoo being one of the, one of the more, more really? famous ones. But uh, yeah, I mean, cuckoos are just so weird. Yeah. Anyway, that's a, that's another really great late summer bird because when the uh, when the fall webworms, at least where I am, start coming out in you know late summer, um, sometimes the cuckoos when they start moving south will just stop where there's an infestation of pa- fall webworms and just have a second brood just like randomly, and so you'll end up yeah. seeing these weird juvenile fledgling cuckoos with all dark bills, which as you can see is kind of a pro- kind of a confusing yeah. species in the in the late summer and the fall. And, uh, but of course they have like little stubby little tails or like cuckoo pittas or something, but, um, yeah, yeah. That's another kind of classic late summer breeder that can, that can cause problems, identification problems. If you're not, if you're not ready for it. One more thing before we get off juveniles and, and, and stuff like that is, uh, summer ducks. We mm, have a lot of summering ducks. Well, yeah. eclipse adults and juveniles and, and getting out of juvenile and, mm-hmm. It just, yeah, we, we have, you know, on the, on the big rivers and, and lakes, we have these big mud flats that just get covered in piles of brown ducks that all look the same. <laughs> and there might be five different species, but they're all just brown. They're ducks. all kind of tucked in and lumps yep. of muddy brown. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say one of the other exciting things, this is still sort of playing on the idea of, you know, one of the fun things about summer is that there are breeding birds with um, the bird camps finding nests is just really cool and oh, yeah. really exciting. And we, during Camp Chiricahua this year, which is the, the event camp that I co-lead here in, in Arizona, I feel like every day we found another broadtail hummingbird nest somewhere. We hmm. found Columbia's Vireo, we found Cordier and Flycatchers. Um, in Camp Colorado, there were baby dippers and baby mountain plovers and, um, we didn't have baby ptarmigan this year, but we've seen ptarmigan with chicks. We've seen dusky grass with chicks. We we found a, a we could hear woodpecker babies inside a tree, and we're like, oh, there's a woodpecker nest here, uh, probably hairy woodpecker. And so let's just stop and look at the hairy woodpecker. And we're looking and looking and looking, and the baby sticks its head out, and we're like, oh, that's an American three-toed woodpecker nest. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's a, nice. that's a little bit, that's a little yeah. bit more interesting. Yeah, and so I mean, it's just it's cool. Like you're not going to see that if you're not birding yeah. in the summer, which yeah. is it's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to you know jump back to talking about camp a little bit. How do you prepare young birders for those sort of long days in the summer weather? Not necessarily for the birds you're going to see, but just for the conditions that you're going to experience. Yeah. So we um, have sort of a the night before and then the day of you know a talk this is what it's going to be like this is mm-hmm. what we're planning um when we plan the trips themselves you know we try to make sure that there are rest stops or shade stops or um really good snacks to bring out at critical points in mm-hmm. the in the day like if everybody's energy is lagging all of a sudden oh this might be a time to bring out the special granola bars um <laughs> having plenty of water always gotta have special granola bars that's uh, that's a good that's, that's a good like year round tip for burning well, and with kids in general with kids, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> it's like the venn diagram is, uh, yeah. but making sure i've got i've got have... some special granola bars that i bring with me <laughs> yeah i'm gonna have to cut no, that out no. greg 
making sure people have their hats, making sure that yeah. I have extra hats. I have extra sunscreen. I have, um, you know, just opportunities to rest, to be excited about what we're seeing myself as, and this is true <laughs> beyond kids, but at, when you're leading a group, your own enthusiasm is probably the most important thing that you can yeah. bring to the table. And so making it sort of fun, like, okay, we're going to have a really long day tomorrow and it's going to be amazing. We're going to be out there forever. It's going to be super hot and we're going to see really <laughs> incredible stuff in spite of that, um, I think also helps. Yeah. Yeah. Frankly, with bird camp, like the kids want to be there. They're excited to be there anyway. So yeah, that absolutely. helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah. See, when we when we lead when we lead trips out to like the shorebird, you know, do the shorebird marches, we started off again, you know, by making sure that everybody's got plenty of water, hats, yeah. um, bug spray, all that stuff, and and but you know, plenty of water. We always have some cold stuff back when you get back because yeah, it goes over you know. Well. But then we started off, you know, we started off by saying, uh, sort of like the the pep talk is, yeah, we're gonna make you cry. <laughs> it's like you're gonna <laughs> uh yeah over over promise it's gonna be worth it it's gonna be worth it but when you get back to the car we're not talking kids here okay <laughs> when you get back to the car you're gonna be dead <laughs> well you know if and if and if you oversell it that way when they're not necessarily dead when they get back they feel like they really exactly something <laughs> This is not a strategy that I use. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, well, no, well, with the kids, it would become a challenge, you know. Yeah. With, this is going to be awful. With, with 50 with fifty year olds, they're like, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> so know your audience is the key here. <laughs> but, you know, another, another thing that I do a lot is demonstrate the behavior that I want to see in the kids. Hey, is everybody remembering to drink? I'm going to just yeah. stop here and take my backpack off and get a drink i always have extra snacks in my bag like when we yeah. leave the trailhead everybody takes their snack and then they usually eat it within the first half hour yes. and then three hours later they're hungry again so i can pull out more snacks for them to eat or um I, i'm terrible about remembering to drink enough water and so yeah, i think we all are a little bit taking yeah. a pause helps yeah and and you know I, I i we all joke but i mean that is the most serious part of all of it and and i yeah. think all of us have experienced you know the three-hour tour that turns into mayhem, and I, I had one of those um, experiences looking for an anhinga in far southern Illinois, and I mean, it was just—it was a hundred degrees, That's and a it muggy was part of the world. It yeah. was unbelievably humid, and we started off on what was going to be just a short, maybe mile, mile and a half round trip um, to go look for this anhinga, and we didn't find it where it was supposed to be, so we kept going. Long story short, it wound up being a 12-mile hike mm. in that heat and humidity, and we had no water. We had nothing. And when we got back to the car, we were both just almost dead and just <laughs> drank. I think we drank all the Gatorade and water and then a six-pack of Mike's Hard Lemonade that was in the trunk. <laughs> I mean, just to, just to hydrate as much as possible with anything we had. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I do. I usually don't like to carry things like a backpack or, or all that stuff in the field, just generally because I don't like to be kind of weighed down. But um, in the summer, it's just super important to have you know a bottle of water, a couple bottles of water uh, with you. Um, so it's worth like throwing a little bit on there. So having a good backpack that can carry that stuff that's not too heavy, that's like breathes, 
is a is a is a huge thing as well that I've. Uh, that yeah, I mean, you can stick water from. bottles in your cargo pockets in your you know true. your shorts or whatever. Just make sure you've got the water. Yeah. Well, during Where, camp, so the thing that we make everybody bring on every trip, and everybody invariably forgets some component of this. But you know, they have to have their backpack. They have to have a mm-hmm. full water bottle, not half full water bottle. They have to have a rain shell. Mm-hmm. Um, because you never know when it's going to rain, sunscreen, yeah. your binoculars, something to write with, something to write on. And then anything beyond that is up to you. Um, but that's sort of the last thing they hear before they go to bed at night and the last thing they hear before we load up <laughs> in the vans in the morning. And then usually when we're about halfway to our destination, somebody will say, wait, my water bottle's not in my backpack. I'm, I'm sure I put it in there. <laughs> so so we you've have got a spare, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. Spares. Exactly. yeah. yeah um, I try to go to places where it's not so hot, you know, elevation. It's not always an option for everybody, Greg. I don't know. There's not a ton of elevation in the upper Midwest, but yeah, uh, I'm just shaking my head here. Yeah. We got, we got like 130 feet I was in, two hours from here. I was going to say, you know, I we have the Southern Appalachians not too far away. It gets up to about uh, 5,000, 6,000 feet, which isn't like huge, but it does cool down up there. It does drop about 10 to 15 degrees. And it is, you, you do notice the difference, especially when the humidity is not nearly as bad up there. Um, so getting to having that option and the birds tend to be a little more active, uh, in those places as well, because they're not as hot either. It's an option for people who have it. If you can get up, <laughs> go, go high. <laughs> you guys that have elevation, um, I, it's really cool. It's been a long, long time since I lived in the mountains. I lived in Colorado in the eighties on the Western slope, but other than that, I've lived here in Chicago my mm-hmm. whole life. But what we have, what we have is big weather. The weather, mm-hmm. the fronts that come barreling down the, the the prairie and the you know, it's it's amazing how everything can change in a matter of six hours, mm-hmm. and and including the birds. It's like those fronts. We're having one come through as I speak. The the temperature is dropping. It's been just ungodly hot for the last month, and it's changing today. And I'm sure that in the next thirty six hours, two days. There's going to be all kinds of reports of new migrants that haven't shown, mm-hmm. that haven't been seen yet, that are just post-breeders uh, moving on that that first front of the what what is just beginning now, the fall migration season. Yeah, getting up into into the mountains is definitely the way that <clears throat> excuse me, the way that I survived the summer down mm-hmm. here. It's just, and that's the wonderful thing about the Tucson area. There are mountains everywhere. You know, from my house in. A half hour, I can be at 8,000 feet, which is really lovely. And it's a little bit farther distance, you know, within an hour, I can be at Madera Canyon or so that helps. So when, when does summer end? Like, when did you put the end of, of summer? Because it does sort of sort of easily transition into fall. And, and we think of, you know, bird fall is different than meteorological fall because bird fall starts in well, heck, it starts in like late June for the most part when birds start moving. But these sort of tips that we're providing, you know, they're useful into the fall. I mean, it, it, it usually is early October when things really start to cool down here where I am. What does it look like where you are when things start officially transitioning to, to, to the fall season? I mean, I feel like it's already, it's not transitioning to fall yet, but it's, you know, the high temperatures the last few days mm-hmm. have been in the upper 90s which sounds really cool like anything below 100 here to me I'm like oh it's cool today (laughs) I think I'll wear long sleeves um I mean it's usually Halloween is the the date for me you know the end of October before you can reliably count on 
not having absurdly hot temperatures. Certainly, like things like, you know, I don't know, when the yellow-billed cuckoos leave in like mid to late September, I feel like yeah. that's sort of like a key transition point between sort of the, the resident and summer breeders and um, really starting to see things moving through. Yeah, I don't know if the idea of, of meteorological seasons was hatched here in the Midwest, but um, it it it's it's pretty true almost to the day, but certainly to the week that, you know, our spring is March, April, May, summer is June, July, August, then fall is September, October, November, and winter is December, January, February. And that it's just, that's just the way it is. The first wave of migrants is starting now, obviously, mm-hmm. but it's still summer and there's still birds breeding. Yeah. And the, the first the first bunch of migrants are coming through, but that's that doesn't change the fact that it's still summer. Yeah. I've had my head uh, into to doing stuff, building stuff on the ABA website for for the last well, it's my full time job. But so I can't remember this. So pardon me for for not remembering um, are these um, the, these radio telemetry stations that are being put up all of those modus modus, the modus. Yep. yeah that are tracking uh now smaller birds in larger numbers than ever yep. before and so, some of the things that we're learning about bird movements especially this time of year like the one that blew my mind was fairly recently discovered about kirtland's warblers do you know what i'm talking about uh remind me okay so I yeah i mean for the for the <laughs> audience you know, kirtland's, about kirtland's warblers. Kirt, there, there are yeah i mean kirtland's warblers is, is they, they breed in a, in a very small area right. in michigan and kind of a, adjacent wisconsin um and now just very little into canada but then they just kind of disappear in august mm-hmm. and it was assumed that they went sort of just dissipated and started on their way to the Bahamas. But it was discovered like the whole population just kind of gets up and moves to Ontario, like north of Ottawa, hmm. um, and just stays there for a month and then flies south. <laughs> huh. I mean, it's just, it's just, we, we just learn stuff like that. And, and uh, the summer movements of birds, you know, we, we think we know stuff like that and we just we don't yeah i think i think that that's that's absolutely true and you know i I know that they've put i'm reminded of a study that some i think there were some school kids in um in southeastern north carolina did where they they were partnering with someone who put some trackers on great egrets great egret is sort of in a lot of parts of the country this kind of ubiquitous late summer bird they move right widely and they just kind of turn up and then they're gone or there's big concentrations of them but anyway they were trying to track like where these birds from the Wilmington area were were going. Some of them were staying kind of close to home, but some of them were going like to the Southern Caribbean and up the coast and just like these crazy long distances that these birds are are taking. But because it's a great egret and you don't think too much about it, you don't really think about where these birds are going because they're they're like literally everywhere. So what the individuals are doing is is not obvious. But uh, they're doing some really, really cool stuff. And I think a lot, there's a lot of birds out there that are doing these neat late summer movements that we are sort of unaware of. And maybe we only see when it's like a really unusual species, like roseate spoonbill or or something like that. But there's a lot of that stuff going on. Yeah, it's interesting to me sometimes how much we think we know and we really know very little. And the things that we know are our interpretation of what we see, which may have very little to do with 
what's actually happening. So it's, yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And then summers in some ways is this sort of mysterious season, you know, because we don't really think of birds moving that much in it, or maybe people just aren't out and they should be. So I hope that the listeners out there find some, some tips, uh, you know, so there's not a lot of summer left, but there's still, you know, next year's coming and it's going to be, it's going to be a hot one again before we even know it. Um, but thank you, Greg and Jenny, for joining me to chat about summer birding. It's always a pleasure to chat, to talk with you guys. Right on. Good talking to you guys. Thanks for the invitation. And I will say this, we are making plans for bird camp for 2022 Absolutely. and I'm actually making plans for 2023 right now as we speak. So if you or a young birder age 13 to 18 is interested in coming to Colorado or Delaware or any one of a number of other young birder camps um, around the country, um, get in touch. Happy to help facilitate that. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy some good summer birding. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Hey, I want to thank those of you who donated to our annual appeal because of the podcast. We reached our $100,000 goal, thanks in part to listeners like you. It's a really fantastic accomplishment for us, and we are incredibly grateful. If you want to help us out even more, you can join the ABA. In addition to supporting this podcast, you get our great magazines, discounts to our partners and travel opportunities with ABA staff and friends. It is a great deal. There's even an e-membership option for those who prefer to do their reading online. To learn more, check out aba.org slash join. I have a bunch of special shout outs to make this week because I, I skipped last week. So let's get to it. Thanks to John Esham of Marysville, Ohio, Greg Keller of Bridgeport, Illinois, Chris Ortega of Pittsburgh, California, John Hardy of Rex, Georgia, Gerard Duane of an undisclosed location, Julie DeGremond of Tallahassee, Florida, Reagan Naughton of Addison, Texas, Daniel O'Brien of Weymouth, Massachusetts, Alex Banwell of Dumfries, UK, Robert Holier of Bainbridge Island, Washington, Lauren Cyphers of Salt Lake City, Utah, Emily and David Hershey of Reading, Pennsylvania, Nelson Chuby of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Carrie Martin of Atlanta, Georgia, Laura Riley of Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, Kate Doglish of Kitchener, Ontario, and Thaxton Smith and Sarah Mountain of Tucson, Arizona, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as the reason for doing so. Thank you so much. It really does mean a lot to me and all of us here. Executive producer of the podcast is Jeff Gordon, who is quite the accomplished guitar player. You might not know that. You might say he is a chord-skilled strumming nerd. Technical production is by John Lowry, who managed to put together this episode despite a home pipe mishap best described as a floor spilled plumbing gird. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who bet on Prince William's racehorse to win in a big horse race, but had their savings completely wiped out on account of Lord Bill coming third. You can find us online at ABA.org or on social media as American Birding Association or ABA. Make sure it's the right one. You know, I'm reminded of this old Norse story about a herd of wild goats who couldn't be hunted by normal means. So the, the Viking hunters had to use this rhythmic pounding to drive the goats to a cliff where they'd, in a panic, jump off to their deaths so they could be collected at the bottom. It was known as the, and I am really sorry about this, the fjord killed drumming herd. Questions, comments, complaints? come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.